Hey friends, have you been blessed or encouraged or challenged by Theology in the Raw? If so, would you consider joining Theology in the Raw's Patreon community? For as little as five bucks a month, you can gain access to a diverse group of Jesus followers who are committed to thinking deeply, loving widely, and having curious conversations with thoughtful people. We have several membership tiers where we where you can receive premium content. For instance, silver level supporters get to ask and vote on the questions for our monthly Patreon only podcast. They also get to see like written drafts of various projects and books I'm working on. And there's other perks for that tier. Gold level supporters get all of this and access to monthly Zoom chats where we basically blow the doors open on any topic they want to discuss. My patrons play a vital role in nurturing the mission of Theology Nara. And for me, just personally, interacting with my Patreon supporters has become one of the hidden blessings in this podcast ministry. So you can check out all of the info at patreon.com forward slash Theology Nara. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology Nara. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology and Raw. My guest today is Brenna Blaine. I met Brenna over uh, Instagram a few months back. She is one of the more requested guests that I have received from various people on social media. Now, some of you might not know the name Brenna Blaine. In fact, a lot of you might not know the name Brenna Blaine. But those of you who do know Brenna Blaine are... I'm going to guess incredibly, incredibly loyal followers. There's a lot of people that absolutely love her voice. And as you will see from this episode, um, it's easy to love the voice of Brenna Blaine. She is a committed Jesus follower, has had a rather turbulent journey that she talks in, in very open ways about on this podcast episode. She's been through a lot of stuff and has, has clung to Christ, or more importantly, Christ has clung to Brenna. And I just absolutely love her raw, her real, her authentic perspective on life, on the gospel, and uh, all that comes with that. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Brenna Blaine. Brenna, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on this podcast. I've been really excited about this conversation. Yeah. I, you already know I'm really excited too. <laughs> well, I, you know, I told you offline that like uh, a while back, I think I was uh, asking for like on social media, who do you guys think I should have on the show? Or I, I forget the context, but like a lot of people were like, you got to have Brenna on. And so mm. there was like, you know, N.T. Wright, the Pope, and then like five Brenna Blaine. So there oh you go. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's my, my social media mob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, yeah, you sicked your mom on me. Good. Um, let's just start for people who are like, who's Brenna Blaine? Tell us who Brenna Blaine is. Yeah. So I guess primarily right now I'm a mom. I got two little kiddos, a four-year-old and a one-year-old. I'm a wife. I'm 27 years old and I um, tried to avoid ministry the majority of my life and found myself thrown into it. And um, asking difficult questions and then found that a lot of other people were also intrigued with asking difficult questions of the church and of faith. And so those are the circles that I kind of run in and I still don't really know what I'm doing. I mean, I, I primarily speak and write and that's what I really love to do, but I still don't, I still don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> I just show up, uh, when, when God opens doors and, um, asks me to walk through them. And sometimes I, I don't want to go, but were, yeah. were you raised in the church in a Christian home? Like what was your background like? Yeah. So my dad was a pastor, I think from the time he graduated college until I was about four years old. So I grew up in very typical, um, kind of like evangelicalism. I knew what, I knew who God was. I knew and my perception was that Christianity was kind of like a rule, uh, a list of do's and don'ts. But that wasn't like, I don't, when I look back, I don't think that's how my parents presented Christianity to me, but I think that's how my young mind kind yeah. of understood it. That seems very natural. That's where we go. Like just, right? I think kids just need that kind of binary, like what's, where's the line? What's right? What's wrong? Can I do the wrong thing? What happens if I do the wrong, you know, like that? It's very mm -hmm. kind of simplified. And I, I feel like sometimes, yeah, I don't know if it's been pounded into us vocally it's just kind of in the air like when you grow up in the church mm. like i don't know never really thought about it but did you have a time of like and i i know this term's thrown around a lot but like deconstruction or what was your um faith journey like when you started to bump into lots of hard questions and wrestling with things like what was that period like for you yeah so for me my 
I don't necessarily refer to it as deconstruction, but my questions with faith started at a really young age. I remember one of the first things that I most actively prayed for as a young child was that my grandma was diagnosed with cancer, I think when I was like six or seven. And so that was like the first time I had ever prayed for something like almost every day. And so I was like talking to God. And when I was nine, I went away to summer camp and I came back home and she had died. And I just remember thinking like, wait a second, Hmm. I've been praying for healing and I've been told that God heals and this was not the case. And, And so that was in August. A few months later, my parents sat us down and said, uh, we're getting separated and my dad moved out. And I thought, okay, wow. this isn't like how Christians usually, I don't, I don't know. Just like it, it was, it like started sparking these questions in my mind. And then um, I think it was like a month and a half after that, I ended up being molested in uh, community sports and my parents didn't know. And, um, And so for me, I was going to church on the weekends as a 10-year-old hearing, hey, the the biggest thing you probably wrestle with is um, lying to your parents. And God can help us when you lie to your parents. And I'm like sitting in in the chairs without language to express, Mm -hmm. actually, no, the biggest thing that I struggle with is that I was molested and my dad doesn't live at home and people are dying and this isn't the God that like, how can I say God is good? And so that really, um, all those things, especially because I didn't share what happened to me. I just got worse and worse. So by the time I was 14, I was super depressed, suicidal. And then I also realized that I was attracted to women. And I knew, um, not, not because of how my parents talked about gay people at all, but because of, um, the Westboro Baptist was huge, um, in the news at that point, I was like, okay, my attractions definitely are not compatible with Christianity. And so I prayed, God, if you're real, would you make me straight? And that did not happen for me. Can you unpack that a little more? I mean, that's, that's a big bomb you're dropping on us. Yeah. So, (laughs) I, um, my parents were, I think they were tuned into, uh, some of the struggles that I was going through, but they didn't, um, they didn't know specifics and I was not ready to come out to them. And so they said, Hey, we our our rule for our kids is that you would be in church, but you don't have to go to our church. If you find a different church you want to go to, that's great. And so I found a youth group that was, I'm an Enneagram four. I don't know if you can tell from my neck tattoo, but I, I um, was going to, I have, I was going to ask about your, looks like it's very new. Uh. It is very new. I was like, this is a great time to do a <laughs> to do an interview. But I, um, I found a youth group that like almost all the kids in this youth group were like, had their own bands and they listened mm-hmm. to like alternative rock music. And it was just, I made friends so quick, but I remember the first weekend I went, met the pastor. He asked me my name and where I went to school. And then I went back the next week and he said, Brenna, right? And I was like shocked that he remembered my name because the Mm. church I'd been at before, I'd been at like for eight years and didn't feel like anyone remembered me. And so I kept going. Um, and, and kind of, I, I've heard other people share about Tumblr on, on your podcast and when you do interviews, but Tumblr was huge. And so I thought, even though it had my name on it, I thought my Tumblr was very private. And so that was kind of like, I was out to a few friends and then I was like out on Tumblr and, um, someone from my church found my Tumblr and told my small group leader and she, um, she was young. She was like a a senior when I was a a freshman and she was super great, but she said, I have no idea what to do, Brenna. So I just need to let you know, I told John, who's our youth pastor. And I freaked out because I thought he's going to ask me to leave. He's going to tell me that this is sinful. I already know this. And he's going to tell my parents, he's going to out me to my parents. But I just really wrestled because this was like the one place during the week that I actually felt happy in like this 
terrible mm. season of depression. And so I was like, I think I can go because this is a pretty big youth group. So I was like, I think I can go and just avoid John like all night. And I think I can keep this up. This is not the case. I don't, you know, when you're like 14, your brain's not fire, firing on all cylinders, but showed up. And we make eye contact and he says, hey, Brenna, um, can I talk to you later tonight? And I just like my heart sunk. And so we ended up sitting down after church and he said, hey, I just need you to know that you are not alone. A lot of Christians struggle with same sex attraction and I'm really glad you're here. And then he wow. like he either gave me a hug or like pat me on the back and then like got up and left. And that was it. And that like shocked me that it wasn't like this. You're terrible. You're you're um, going to hell. Like all these things that I expected just didn't happen. And all of a sudden, and it wasn't that I was questioning, oh, maybe he has different theology than I thought he did. It was just uh, he made that youth group a safe place. Like all of a sudden it was okay that I was there. And so I continued to go back and that ended up being kind of a miracle that John said that because later about, I was, I think it was like a year later, I had no real theology of sexuality, especially at that age. And so I thought because I was not being made straight, that I was damned to hell. And so we did like a hot button um, issues series. And one of them was, is being gay. And, and so I went and I remember that night just feeling like, I think it was like bright red the entire night. I just felt like everyone knew that I was gay and like that I was there. And that's not the truth. But the guy who was speaking was not same sex attracted, not gay, but he talked about how he's like, it's so crazy when, straight people get married, um, no one expects for their attractions to other people just like melt away. But what they do expect is this maturity in Christ to say no to these outside temptations. Mm. And I just don't know why we don't extend that to people who, who are same-sex attracted. Wow, and that cool. blew my mind. I'd never heard that before. So all of a sudden, I was offered this piece of theology about sexuality that would allow me, if I came to the conclusion that God was real and that God is to be revered and, and God is to be trusted, that I could be in right relationship with him if I wanted to be. And so that, I think that sermon lived in my brain for years because I wasn't, I wasn't ready to make that choice. And I was still having conversations on the side mm -hmm. with my friends who were out. How did you come out to your parents? Like, mm -hmm. what was that like? And then I was dating, um, guys, um, some friends and it just like, wasn't working out. Um, but I ultimately was like, man, I just don't, I don't buy any of this. And I just, I think it's, Stupid and I don't know. And Wait, so real I quick, how would you say don't buy any of this? Buy any of what? Like the, the Christian faith. stuff? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so um I went to uh, a college prep high school that I was terrible. Like I got bad grades and I hated it. And I did not want to go to college. And so I was like, I need to, I need to run away from God and faith and all this stuff. And my parents were like, you just like go do something like they, I'm sure they knew some of what I was internally thinking, but they're like, just go like, why don't you just go do something fun or get away, even if you're not going to go to school. And so I thought like the best way to hide from God would be if I went and did youth with a mission, because I think I could go. And like, if I went to Maui, I think I could surf all day and I think I could smoke a lot of weed. Like, I think that's what will end up happening. And that's not what ended up happening. <laughs> right? Like, it was just like this. It felt like it would make sense. And then I got there and it was crazy because I think everyone who ended up there in my specific school, I think everyone was thinking the same thing. I think almost all the students were running um, from something in their home life. And my YWAM experience was actually really, I still really wrestle with how to describe it because I, I 
I did encounter what I think a lot of people hear about YWAM, which is just like funky leadership and funky theology and um, just things that aren't super helpful and maybe some like spiritual manipulation. But at the same time, I I think my first week there, I like prayed this prayer that was like, okay, Lord, if you're real, would you just like make yourself known? And then that happened. And then I was like, okay, I don't know, but I'm just going to surrender my life to you. And that, that six months away mm. completely changed my wow. life. Wow. So that, so you first, so you, you covered, I want to say about five years right there, right? You first came out or got, or got outed really at 14. And then this mm -hmm. is now you're what, 18, 19 at YWAM? Yeah. Or, mm -hmm. um, and was it the, so you said, was it the Kona campus or the, or is, is there one in Maui too? I was in Maui. Oh, Maui. Okay. I got a good friend at the Kona campus right now. So it was at YWAM that you had this encounter with Christ for lack of better terms. I mean, that was, you mm -hmm. know, um, a, a turning point in your life. And then obviously your same-sex attraction went away completely because now you know Jesus, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Gone. <laughs> no, I remember saying to uh, a girl we became really good friends with while we were there, I said, because there was a thing where it was like, even if you had kind of dealt with your past sins, like everyone confesses their past sins no matter what to everyone, which was one of those things I was like, hmm. I don't think that's super healthy for like 18 year olds in a super emotionally charged atmosphere. But my friend said, I told that to her and she said, Brenna, I love you. I don't think of you any differently under no circumstances. Should you share this with anyone else here? Because I think you would be sent home. Really? And I clinged to that. And looking back, I think that was like wisdom from her. And I think I would have been really, really hurt if that would have happened. And so internally, I ended up like during that six months, like talking to the Lord about marriage, talking to the Lord about my sexuality and just saying, okay, I, Lord, you know that I have always had a desire to have a family. You know, I have a desire to like spend my life with someone, but also I don't believe being alone the rest of my life. If it means having you, if it means running after you and chasing you, I think being alone would be okay. Like, okay. I don't think it would be the worst. And so that's kind of, that That was the time when I landed with sexuality going, I don't think I'm going to be made straight. I do think this is going to be a struggle for the rest of my life. I'm okay with that. I believe the Lord will be sufficient in my temptations and my struggles, mm -hmm. but I'm also going to live um, by this biblical mm -hmm. sexual ethic. Did you wrestle with a, like an affirming view, like a bit like from the Bible, like, you know, there's lots of Christian authors now defending an affirming view of same-sex marriage. Did you go through a theological journey where you were kind of like weighing both sides of that debate or did was it really clear from the beginning of your journey what the Bible says? Or? Um, I did not travel through the theological arguments until after I got married. Oh. And, uh, and I read your book and I had a little bit of a crisis because I felt like when I was reading through people to be loved, like, we were going in a direction that I was really nervous about. <laughs> um, and then we got to the end and it was okay. But I, um, I think we read that. I think I'd been married for like a year at that point. Cause I, I had been, well, there's, there's a whole, there's a whole lot there. So I got home from YWAM and this was the first time I went off mental health medications. Cause I was put on, mental health medications at 14 and was on them all through high school, always at YWAM, came home, really felt like I was healed, like the Lord had done a work. I was re like really just had never felt that way before um, and was kind of just working through while I was at YWAM. Got, um, I did not grow up charismatic whatsoever. While I was at YWAM, received many words from people, um, about being in ministry and teaching and speaking. And I thought you're out of your mind because, um, I've never spoke. I, uh, absolutely have no desire to be in ministry. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, it doesn't make sense. And then I, I got home and I just could not stay away. Um, I think specifically like from youth ministry okay. because I was just like, oh, I don't, there is so much that the Lord has for teenagers that I wish I knew that I wish I knew how alive Christ is when I was in high school. And so it was like a month after being back, a a guy called and said, Hey, could you speak at our youth group? And I said, "Uh, okay. Um, and and so I, I ended up going, okay, Lord, you keep putting me on a stage, which is fine. That's fine. But I am not equipped to do this. So are you asking me to go back to school to study theology? Like, do I have to do these things that I hate? Because also my four years during high school, I went to Mars Hill in Portland, Oregon. Oh, okay. So that's a whole piece. It's probably right. important. Whole yeah. other thing. But all that to say, my idea of theology, where people who are into theology were really mean, reformed people. And like, that was it. And I was like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to. So I ended up at Multnomah and um, Brad Harper was actually my theology professor. Oh, no so, way. Okay. Yeah. And so it was just, um, ended up there and I... Ended up uh, as working as a youth pastor, going to school for theology, and um, I had just gotten married to my husband, Austin, and all, like I all of a sudden stopped sleeping. Hmm. This is really weird, but I just like couldn't sleep. This is in 2017 when I entered ministry vocationally. Couldn't stop thinking about death. Couldn't like... I. It was just like all of a sudden, it was like my mental health issues came back, but in mass quantity, like never had in like experienced anything like that. So it started in September and I went into work on a Monday morning in January of 2018 and I had been praying that the Lord would heal me and it didn't happen. And it had been so long since I had slept and I was trying to do school and I was trying to be a pastor. And I thought, well, if I'm not going to be healed, I might as well just go be with the Lord. So I'm going to kill myself. I'll just do that. And so that was Monday morning. I met with my, um, with John, who was my youth pastor, who is now my like supervisor training me. And I said, I'm thinking about, like I'm praying about stepping down because I didn't want all this to come as a shock. And he said, okay, like we'll pray with you. Why don't you um, step out of your meetings for the rest of the day? And so I knew that I could go home, attempt suicide, and that I would probably die before my husband got home from work. And so I went to my office and I felt like I couldn't leave And so I set a timer on my phone for 30 minutes. And I was like, as soon as this, and it wasn't fear or anxiety. It was just like this really weird feeling. So I felt, I set a timer on my phone. The timer went off. I packed my bags. I stood up and my office door flies open. And it's like my best friend's mom. And she said, do I need to take you to the hospital? And I was like, no, that, no, that's weird. And she said, Brenna, you need to sit down. Do I need to, like, is there any relief in the idea of taking you to the hospital? And I, like, broke down. And she had been, she had gotten coffee with someone and was driving back to her house and felt like the Lord said, could you pull over and pray? So she pulled over and started praying. And while she was praying, she felt like the Lord said, you need to go get Brenna. And just, like, miraculously Like in the minute that I was going to leave my office to go home, this woman walks into my office. And so she takes me to the hospital. It was not a secret that I had been struggling at all. I was pretty open with people. And um, I had a friend who said, I I want you to meet with this guy. And he was like an older gentleman who was a pastor. And I met with him and and he had some good insights, but I just like wasn't feeling good and about that. And then um, 
yeah, it was just, it was, it was really, really funky. And so I'm in the hospital. The nurse is like taking me through, I promise this is all connected. The nurse is taking me through like getting all my blood stuff going. And he's at, was asking me and he knew I was there on suicide watch and asking me these questions. And for some reason, I think he asked what I was doing. And I said that I like went to school for theology and he said, um, oh, my wife's my wife goes to Western. Mm. And I was like, oh, cool. And he goes, yeah, you know, Gary Brashears. <laughs> and that was the man that I had had coffee with Okay. that yeah. I had just met. And I like didn't like I didn't really know anything about him besides what I knew from going to Mars Hill. Um, and I was just like, why? Like, why am I in the hospital? Why did someone pick me up? Why does this nurse know this guy? Then I get transferred to a psych ward. And that night was like, my husband followed me up, but he wasn't allowed to come in and they were switching the nurses shifts. And I, um, so the nurse said, you're going to be alone for like an hour. And I like sat on the edge of my bed and was like, this is terrible because the locked units are a lot like jail cells. And I just, that was like the first time in my life ever where I had been completely alone. Like no one was allowed in my room. No one was coming to visit. And I just remember thinking that verse that I hate, um, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, prayer and supplication, make your request known to the Lord. And I was like, well, that's all I have. Like, that's all I can do, literally, because I have nothing. I don't have a phone. I can't see anyone. I want to die. There's nothing in this room I can kill myself with. So I just said, okay, Lord, like, I asked you to heal me. You That's obviously not your will for me. But would you be with me right now? Wow. And I slept for the first time in like six months. I slept for eight hours straight. And I think about that moment because there is nothing else that makes sense Mm. other than that the Lord was like, yes, I'll be with you. And so the next morning, the psychiatrist walks in and he looked at me, looked at my chart and said, did you do YWAM? That's the first thing that came out of this man's mouth. And I'm like, you're a doctor. You're not supposed to be asking faith questions. And he goes, you just look like you run in those circles. And I said, yeah, I do that. (laughs) And then he goes, so how does um, trying to commit suicide fit in with your theology? This is a, wow. Yeah, this is a psychiatrist in a psych ward in the middle of nowhere. And I just said, it doesn't. And he said, you have some things you have to do and you need, you need to get better if you're going to do them. Mm. And I, and so it was just like every single moment along this like insanity that happened right after I got married, that from the moment I decided to, that I was going to commit suicide, that the Lord was at work, like relentlessly pursuing me. Mm. And it was something that I couldn't, Like, those are all things you can't ignore. But so when I came out of that and I I ended up so weird, I took a pregnancy test and I found out I was pregnant. And uh, just like all these, right? you're like, why? And so I I was like, I need to not be a youth pastor. I don't want to be a pastor. I really don't feel like I'm supposed to be in here. But Lord, what are you calling me towards? And I really felt like he was like, look back at your life, what you've struggled with what you're passionate about, all this mess that you felt like has been so weighty and isolated and just that you've wondered why have you gone through this? Like, this is what your ministry will be like. And so that's still very much Mm -hmm. unfolding. Like there are things where I'm like, okay, Lord, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing this week. I don't know what you want me to do, but I, I think because of walking through those things, I've found myself to be continuously passionate about the spiritually suspicious and those people who are saying, I just think so many of those things lead people to deconstruction or Mm -hmm. lead people away from God. And when I look back at all the things I've walked through, 
it's insane to me that I I believe the Lord has unveiled himself mm. through all those things. And so that kind of, I mean, that was in 2018. I finished school. I started a podcast. I started asking questions in community settings. And, um, and so that's where I land today. That's not that. So, I mean, I have so many questions, by the way. I just, I, I, I don't I try not to interrupt too much, but um, just to point out, I mean, that's a really dark space you're in. And I, I would imagine a decent percentage of people are just resonating so much with that space right now. Um, mm. I, you know, we think it's like a fringe population. I, this is a, this is a, a, especially with younger people and the stuff they're going through. Like that's not, this is not your, your journey is not unusual. And yet I want to point out that this is post radical conversion post, um, YWAM, post-theological degrees, post, you're a, you're a pastor, you're married, all these things that people think, oh, if you have all these boxes you're ticking off, then life must be fine. You wouldn't expect somebody to have several months of anxiety-induced insomnia and be on the edge of your hospital bed at a psych ward because you're about to commit suicide. Like that, that's not part of the p- package that we're being sold as Christians. Yeah. It's kind of like if you do all these things, then everything will be hunky-dory. So that, I mean, I just want to, I don't even know if that's a question. I just want to point that out that doing all the kind of right things doesn't always make life easier. In fact, sometimes they can make life harder. And there's there's a lot of shame, I think, in Christian leaders that struggle deeply with life as as you have mm-hmm. and are, and we all are. Um, and I just, I love the fact that you're able to talk about it because I think there's a lot of leaders listening that are like, yeah, I feel like that. I just can never say that can never. Yeah. I, as a pastor, I can't check myself into a psych ward cause I'd lose my job or, you know, so that, I mean, 2018, that's not that that's five years ago. Um, what's it been like since it, is this an ongoing struggle? Can you pinpoint why you have, can I say anxiety? Is that the right word? Like, like a struggle with anxiety yeah, that well, leads to so insomnia. When I was in the, in the psych ward I got, which is really curious. So in September, I, noticed all that anxiety. So I went back on a medication that had worked for me. I think it was an SSRI. And I got diagnosed as bipolar two when I was coming out of the psych ward. And they said, Hey, by the way, that medication you were on was not making you better. It was making you worse. Ah. And it basically put me into a medically induced like mania for the entirety that I was taking it. And so coming out of it, I, you know, I, part of the, when you get released from the hospitals, you have to create a care plan. So, um, and it was like terrible timing because my therapist was like going to be on a two month sabbatical or something. So I had to find a new therapist. Um, I was put on different mental, mental health medications, just started being, and I want to say, I expected that I was going to lose my job. Like I didn't think it was going to be an option. And when I went back, the church said, we would love for you to stay and we're going to give you a month um, of medical leave to just rest and to think about what you want to do next. But we would, we would love for you to stay. And I said, really? Cause I got, I've been diagnosed as bipolar. And they said, that doesn't matter to us. Wow. Like you love the Lord. And that I recognize that that is very different compared to like what a lot of people have experienced or, um, what a lot of people anticipate. And so ultimately I did feel like God was saying like, no, I'm not calling you to be a pastor. And Mm -hmm. so I did step down, but, um, I think that was huge was, was stepping down and just focusing on school. So the, they didn't make you step down. You stepped down and that was in 2018. And are you still, you're not, you never went back to being a youth pastor full time or nope, nope. I never went back to pastoral, um, ministry and I'm very, very, thankful for it. I think, man, being a pastor is the hardest job in the world. Um, the Lord op- really opened up a lot of doors for me to, I think since then I've been either writing for, speaking for, or consulting okay. for churches and ministries, which is my absolute passion. Like I just love it. What kind of, what kind of writing, what kind of consulting, like, is it around sexuality or, or just kind of anything? Um, it's kind of whatever. I mean, 
most of the time the consulting is, Hey, we're doing a series on gender and sexuality. Like what was your experience? How, um, our, our home church here has done like a really remarkable job. They, I think they ended up doing, it was either six weeks or eight week long series on gender and sexuality that I got to help be a part of. Um, but just saying like, how do we do this? Well, what are young people dealing with? What do they think through when they're going through this? Um, writing is, I mean, I've written about, um, abuse and about same-sex attraction and mental health is kind of those three main points. And then, um, speaking because I went to school for theology, I, th- I get a little bit more freedom in that. And so that's usually okay. just, Hey, we're doing a conference on this. So, yeah. When, when I'm curious when you consult on gender and sexuality, like what are some big picture like that six week, eight week series, or if churches are like, hey, we want to tackle this topic, what what are some things we need to do or not do? What what's your um what are your main points you you tell leaders? What I've found recently is that a lot of people who don't struggle, so we'll say like cishet people, when they think I think I have the of, only audience um, that probably knows exactly what that means. Right. I was like, <laughs> I can use this term here. Because it's LGBTQ, I have found that I get so many questions on gender. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I am, I struggle with same sex attraction, but I have never struggled with gender dysphoria. Okay. And so, kind of saying to people, like, go to the people who have been willing to talk about their experience and get their experience from them. Because I, I yeah, I think it's really interesting that people are like, oh, you're gay. Like, tell me about gender. And I'm like, I cannot (laughs) because it's not a struggle that I've been through. And I like it it would be unfair and unkind for me to try and speak on it. And then I think the something that I'm always that I'm convinced would have changed my upbringing in the church is a continual language of inclusion and recognizing that same sex attracted Christians and Christians who struggle with gender dysphoria are in your church. They're not these outside people. They're not like people who are far from God. They are sitting in your pews. They are people you are friends with. And so I always think if when I was in high school, instead of having the sex talk and then going to youth group and being like, well, what boys do you like? If it was like a sexuality talk and then saying like, hey, we all have sexual brokenness. Can you identify what it is in your life? That would have radically, Mm. I think, destroyed so much shame and guilt. And it just would have brought this sense of like, oh, this is not, I am not far off from the Lord. Mm. Like the Lord can still use me and be active in my life. And I'm not a, a secret to be hidden or um, a person to be shamed. I'm a person because I just think it's so normal for people to talk about struggling with pornography or sex outside of marriage, but it is s- still somewhat taboo to talk about same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria. Now you're you're in the Portland area still, right? I am. Yes. So, so when you work with churches, that because I mean Portland is notoriously right, like very. A progressive city and everything. And I would imagine that, yeah, for churches there, this is not some kind of fringe issue. This is right at the center of what they're wrestling with. Is that, would that be true? Or can you describe the church scene in in Portland? Yeah. So I would say, I mean, you think of like, you think of Bridgetown and you think of some other big churches, like I'm in Vancouver, so I'm about 10 minutes across the the river. And so I think of like the more mega sized churches here do hold a non affirming um, traditional sexual ethic. But then the majority, like, I, if I go to a small church, I kind of assume they're affirming. Okay. Um, and I think that's pretty normal. And so I, and I think probably because of the way I look, I have a lot more people who are like, hey, you're gay. And then it's like, a, I had actually, I had an interview once 
where they said, I love, um, I love your story. Like, let's talk about it. And then in the middle of the interview, they found, they found out that I was non-affirming and I was like, <laughs> Ooh, you did not do your homework. And that was like wildly shocking. Yeah. And it just made a really strange interview. Um, but I, yeah, I think people are like, I think it's more common for this. I, it, I think assumptions here are normal and people assume yeah. you're affirming and, um, and, and so, yeah, it's a little bit, it's not wildly hostile, but it is a little bit more hostile. Okay. Yeah. What are some other, so like, um, going back, like when you talk to, if churches are going to dive in and address the topic and disciple their people. So a big one you said is you didn't use this phrase, but I think it's kind of what you're getting at. Like not making this, this isn't an us versus them. Like there's, this mm, isn't mm-hmm. out there, you know, how do we, you know, I, I get people, you know, okay, we want to love the gay community, you know, like out there. And how do we do that? I'm like, well, how are you doing it with the people in your pews? Yeah. And, and if you, t- if you dare tell me there are none, then let's start there, you know? So that's, that's a, and, and uh, the phrase I, this phrase sometimes can be misunderstood, but um, I hear you. Well, I, yeah, I don't want to put a word in your mouth, but like normalizing the experience. Now that word can be taken in two ways. It could be taken in like um, normalizing, say a certain behavior could say you're not naming sin and that's not what i mean i'm saying like there's a whole gamut of human experiences in this broken fallen world and um yeah there's there's lots of people going through lots of different things and that's what i mean about normalizing yeah what are some other key things that you tell leaders pastors parents maybe even as they're wrestling with the topic um not to rush or to have your first thing be well what do you believe theologically like i i when i think about my conversation with john as my youth pastor as a as a teen i think if it if he if the first thing he would have said which he never he like literally never talked about it and i never questioned him but um i think if he would have said well you know what our church believes, or, you know, I believe, or like, what do you believe? I, I think it would have put me in a situation or it would have made me feel like I was a theological issue to be dealt with Mm. rather than a person to be in relationship with. Mm. And my, um, I I know people like, I, I always talk about this when I talk about sexuality, but I love, I think it's in Mark chapter, it's either in Mark chapter two or Mark chapter four, when Jesus is approaching Levi, the tax collector mm-hmm. and how just the, the cultural feelings towards tax collectors in, in that historical setting, how they're just hated. And I, mm-hmm. I, assume that when people who had heard of Jesus or had been interacting with him saw him approaching Levi, that they were like anticipating him calling him out of this behavior and that Jesus simply says, follow me. And in that gives Levi an opportunity to see the person of Christ, to experience the person of Christ, and then decide, am I going to actually follow Jesus or am I going to return to my tax booth? Mm. And I think um, it's so unfair when we call people before they ever know the person of Christ to the standards of Christ. I just think that's... um, it's unkind. And it's like, mm-hmm. it, we tell people to fall in love with Jesus and then we don't give them that opportunity. And so when I, I think when we rush to, well, what do you believe theologically or seeing people on those issues, we're saying there's no space for you to wrestle here. Yeah. When I, when I see the opposite in Jesus's interactions, not that truth isn't, not that Jesus doesn't hold truth, but that he gave people time. Yeah to experience him and then decide for themselves that the theological conversation should happen in the context of a relationship or at least, yeah. I mean, it's counterintuitive too, especially as you know, I'm a, I guess technically a theologian. So I love theology. I love the Bible. And I often give this, I mean, honestly, but Brenda, the same exact advice, like, especially with parents with, with LGBTQ mm. kids. Um, the number one thing is that you don't, don't, don't front load or rush that theological mm. conversation. And it's almost like some people at least are like, yeah, but okay, when can we get the Leviticus? You know, I just, yeah. when, you know, I'm like just that eagerness I, makes me nervous. Like just, just lay that thick, thick relational foundation. Cause any kind of profitable theological conversation, profitable 
you can have a theological conversation. It won't be particularly profitable if there's not this uh, relational uh, collateral that you've built with the person you're talking to. And I, I've often felt it helpful to let the person lead the theological conversation when they're asking mm. the questions, when they're like, okay, what, so what does the Bible say? They prob- I mean, typically that won't happen unless they feel like they're in a safe relational space where if they give mm. a wrong answer, if they don't have the right answer yet, they know that's not going to break the relationship, but that might take time to lay that collateral down. Anyway, that that's I'm glad to hear because <laughs> you're affirming what I've been saying, but it's so helpful for me to hear you affirm it because you've mm. been on this journey. And you know, I do wonder if there's a generational thing here too, because I found that everything you said and what I've said is seems to ring very true with people kind of under thirty ish, and sometimes it's hard for people my age or older, I'm 40, I just turned 47 yesterday, um, to, I don't know, to, to, it's harder for us to do that, to, <laughs> to, to delay a theological mm. conversation because this is so important, right? It's God's word. And I thought, yeah. I, it's not about diminishing the importance of God's word. It's about creating a place where somebody could actually receive, right. And, and, and see the beauty in God's word. But, um, no, that's super helpful. I, I Brent, I want. Can I return back to your mental health uh, journey? Um, how I, I would imagine, and I, Enneagram fours, you guys have it really hard. I know several, and your story is not too different than I feel like most Enneagram fours I know, which is sad to me. Um, mm. What advice would you give? What would you say to somebody who has heard your mental health journey and is really resonating with a lot of that? Like how, I almost want to say, how do you fix it? How do you get over, how do you solve this? Or is it, is that even the wrong question? Like, or how do you, how do you walk with Jesus while wrestling with sometimes very severe mental health issues that you did not choose to like be a part of your journey? Yeah, I, um, I think it was like three weeks after I got out of the hospital, I was slated to teach and they said, you can teach if you want, but there's no pressure. And I thought, I'll teach. Let me see. Like, I'll just find something. And I remember I was flipping through the Bible, just asking the Lord, like, okay, what do you want to say to these kids? And also don't, it's not for me. It's for these kids. Don't talk to me because I don't really want to talk to you right now. And um, I came across uh, the story of Lazarus I was just reading it. Cause I had never really sat down and read through it, nor had I really ever paid attention to Mary and Martha and, and their um, point of view in the story and just found it really incredible that these people who were, they didn't just know Jesus. They were friends with Jesus um, saying, we know the Lord of the universe, surely he, and he loves us, surely he will come and heal our brother. And I found myself reading that thinking like, that's what I've been saying this whole time. I know the Lord of the universe, surely he will come and heal me Mm. and reading. And then, and Jesus doesn't come. Like he hears and he doesn't come. And he says, he's going to stay a few more days in the town that they're in. And just thinking like, like, Jesus, you jerk. Of course, you're going to like, you did this to them. You're doing it to me. Um, and then just came to the, the, the part of the story where the sister runs out and she's like, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And how heavy Mm. that must've been. And then when Jesus like goes into the house and, and mourns with them, it says Jesus and Jesus wept thinking like, why are, why are you weeping? First of all, like you could have showed up, you could have been there, then you didn't, but you also know you're going to raise him from the dead. So why are you weeping? Why are you wasting time? Like get into the grave and get this guy up and just feeling like the Lord said, Brenna, I am not a glorified superhero. Like I don't just come in, fix the situation and leave. I desire to have a relationship with you and to be with you. And what you haven't realized is every day that you prayed for me to heal you, you did not ask me to be with you. And I just want to be with you. Mm. And I know that like the future of my mental health was unknown and is unknown, but I, 
I remember reading through that and then going back to the Israelites in in the wilderness saying like, why can't we just collect manna every um, one, once, like on Monday morning and then have it for the week? And how the Lord was like, uh, you have a need and I want to commune with you. And realizing this is the worst thing I have ever been through, but I believe in the Lord and I have missed the fact that God wants to be with me. Like I love in Psalms when it says like, even if you make your bed at the gates of hell, I will be with Mm. you. Cause I always think it's like this will like rescue me. Mm. And there's something so wildly beautiful that I know when I die, I will be made whole. So maybe I won't be made whole now, but even in that, maybe not. Christ wants to be with me. He wants to sit next to me at the gates of hell. And, and, um, and so realizing like, okay, the Lord is so good that in the brokenness of this world, he has made, um, he, the goodness in that I struggle with bipolar is that I now have the thing that the enemy meant to destroy me that now will allow me to be dependent on the Lord every single day. And I know at the end of my life, I will be made whole. Mm. And so mm. I think just this, as hard as it is, realizing that maybe you'll be healed, maybe you won't until, because you will be made healed when you see Jesus face to face, that there is a wildly beautiful communing with God that we can step into in the midst of our pain and our suffering. And it's not a stepping out of your pain or stepping out of your suffering. It's God stepping into it with you. Mm. And you will come to know the Lord in a way that you have never known him before. And I look at my life and who Jesus is on the other side. I am so thankful that the Lord allowed me to suffer in the way that I did, because I would not know the Lord the way I know him now if I didn't. So being with, so the Lord being with you doesn't necessarily take away the struggle, all right? But it, right. it, it cultivates hope that there will be resolution in the end. Um, whether or not that resolution breaks into the now, it will be there in the end. So that, I mean, in the last five years, how, how has your mental health journey been? Has it been ups and down, or has it been a lot better or worse? or? Yeah. I mean, I, I had, after that, I ended up having two kids and it's interesting. I have heard more recently, a lot of women, um, especially women who have a lot of kids will say, I had a lot of kids because I feel so good when I'm pregnant or all the hormones and all those things. And so I ended up going off with the help of my doctors going off medication, literally, I think it was April of the pandemic. Okay, And I've been off. And I don't want to say that as it being like the ultimate goal of someone who Mm -hmm. struggles with mental health, because I might have to go back on mental health medications. And if that's the best thing for me, that is the best thing for me. But these last, um, I think that'd be almost three years or three years. I don't know, uh, have been for the most part, really really, really good. And I think another thing that's part of that is before that, I always thought I want to get married. I want to have kids Mm -hmm. and I just want to be a stay at home mom. And then I went to school and I realized how much I love work. (laughs) And then I thought, well, I can't really work because I do ministry, but there's not a huge need. And then the Lord said, well, uh, there kind of is and has given me things to do. And so, yeah, it's been there, there have been difficult moments, but for the most part, it's been a really, really good last three years. Okay. Wow. Uh, th- something we haven't even talked about, if you don't mind talking about it, because I know it, it can be a, a hot button issue, but I mean, you you are in what some people might, I don't do you like the phrase mixed orientation marriage? I don't know if you use that phrase. Some people like it, some people don't, but. Um... Uh, you know, <laughs> I used it. I used, I think I used the term on a video once. And then I think there was like another video that you and I probably both know that kind of blew up about those uh, sayings. And okay. I, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't hold a lot of weight. It's like, I'm married and I don't really care. <laughs> How I mean, because some you know, it can be 
Like, so I, I know, I know one, um, a friend of mine who's uh same sex attracted. He's a guy, he's married to a woman. They have three kids, I think. Um, and I remember he, he gave like a, a breakout session at a sexuality conference that I think was most like largely affirming. Um, and it was on mixed orientation marriages. And he said it was, it was intense, kind of hostile because, mm. uh, and I, and I think that, and I, and I, I can only imagine that in some circles, um, marriage to the opposite sex has been held out as kind of like this, like, ah, just, just do it and it'll work out mm-hmm. and it'll fix you. And you know, your same sex attraction will go away. And this is God's design. So I think there's been a kind of a selling point maybe in some circles that yeah. has left a bad taste in people's mouths. So whenever, for some people, whenever they hear about a mixed orientation marriage, they kind of have this, it's almost like a trigger. Like they assume that it's being like held out as this is for everybody. This would work for everybody. Um, can you, for somebody who, um, I mean, there's a lot, lot of um, same sex attracted gay Christians that listen to this podcast, um, you know, so, some might be committed to celibacy. Some might be in a mixed orientation marriage for like a better term. Some are affirming. Yeah. Can you talk about when people ask about like, how does that work? And is this for yeah. everybody? And, you know, is this even possible? Like, what, how do you, mm-hmm. when people ask you about your marriage, what's your response? Yeah. So I think the thing I found myself saying most is like, don't pray um, or like ask God for marriage, like talk to God about marriage. Because I think when we're like, when we tell people to pray for your future marriage or whatever, it becomes like this ultimate goal that has never been, that's not how marriage has ever been presented. And um, when I was in YWAM was when I kind of, I think I received clarity about the function of marriage and marriage being ministry and a partnership with people. And yes, there, there are things um, like sexual attraction matters. And, and so it wasn't for me, why I didn't like say commit to vocational singleness is because I felt like maybe there will be someone someday that I fall in love with. I don't know. And if say fall in love with, I don't, that's really cliche, but someone who, I have a desire to spend the rest of my life with. And Austin, I met him when I was 14, actually. Oh, wow. And he was, um, uh, ended up being a youth leader at the youth group I went to. And so I knew him by proximity, but really didn't know him well. And he wrote me a letter of encouragement while I was doing youth with a mission. And we just never stopped writing each other after that. And I remember thinking, man, this guy's really become my best friend, but I'm not physically attracted to him. I don't really know. So it just like doesn't feel possible because I can't will myself. And I really do think same sex attracted people like a mixed orientation marriage can be risky, especially when like that part doesn't come. And so I just kept you know, like having an open conversation with Austin, um, and with the Lord and kept saying, okay, Lord, like I would love to marry my best friend. I would love to spend the rest of my life with Austin. I would love to raise kids with him. I'd love to do ministry with him, but I can't be faithful in, in the sex part of our marriage. Like if this doesn't work for me, and that's, it's not everything that marriage is about, but it's an important part. And so I just kept having an open conversation with the Lord and felt like over time I gained attraction to him. And I don't say that as like, if you pray, you will gain attraction to the opposite sex. Like, I just think that was what the Lord had. And, um, and like marriage, it didn't, it did not make me straight. Like I've, I've had significant seasons of, um, struggling with temptation. And it's been like really amazing to have a partner who I say partner, and then I sound like a a liberal straight woman. Um, (laughs) but to have a, a husband who like understands that part about me, but is like faithful to remind me that, the Lord is enough. And I, and so it's just nice. I don't know that it's never really been a secret in our marriage in that it didn't feel like something that was forced, but I, like, I, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of other same sex attracted people who are saying I'm kind of interested in this person. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. My advice usually is 
okay, like this sexuality and sexual attraction matters. It's not everything, but I do think it matters. And I do like, if you marry someone that you physically don't want to be with, that is a red flag to me. Um, and I think that's something you need to like wrestle with maybe for sure with the Lord, maybe in counseling, if you feel like you want to go there, but mm-hmm. it's not, I don't yeah. think people need to get married to be fixed. And I also don't think <laughs> like, I think the Lord is faithful to people who remain same sex attracted throughout their life because yeah. he has been. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a great, yeah, great, res- great response. And it's one that like so many of my friends who are in a similar marriage situation would would say um i think a big one is don't if you are if you do feel i mean marriage is a calling it's i mean we have such a secular view of marriage of just like you you fall in love with somebody and you know it's kind of like now we can have christian moralized sex you know and yeah you know when i ask if i ask young people like you're gonna get married like why you know it's like Mm -hmm. usually it's a really theologically anemic response and no shame i mean i didn't i didn't have any kind of theology of marriage going going into my marriage um but um, yeah, but all of my friends say that like I didn't go in expecting to have some miraculous like opposite sex attraction. Um, but most of the ones I know that have healthy marriages, they said I unexpectedly did develop a, I mean, they call it sex, maybe not even sexual, but just a holistic kind of attraction to my spouse, mm. even though I still had same sex attraction in the world out there. I had this kind of unique um, love and bond to my spouse that I didn't expect. It, it didn't include it, maybe some romantic or sexual mm-hmm. attraction, um, but it was, they always describe it as in more holistic terms, this relational agape love bond that I had with my spouse and admiration that I had for them as a person, this partnership we have as a ministry team or whatever. Um, what, what was kind of the foundation that drove this, you know, bond that I have with them. So mm. I know you got kids to go attend to. One last question. Can you explain your pretty BA uh, neck tattoo to us? So I, I, it looks like a butterfly with almost like an Iron Maiden kind of skull going on in the middle. So that, yeah. there's something in depth going on here. Uh, can you explain it to us? <laughs> yeah, I um, maybe I know I'll make some people upset. It doesn't have any meaning. I just like it. Okay. It is a moth <laughs> and there is a big, big skull in the middle of it. I love skulls. People, I've like had interesting reactions because I have a few other skulls tattooed on me and people are like, I know you love Jesus, but, but... I just feel like skulls are evil. Yeah. And I'd say, well, man, there's so much beautiful imagery surrounding skeletons and skulls and like new life in the Bible. And so that's what it is to me. But for me to say like, that's what, why I got this would be a lie. I just have, um, my dad used to take me to look at motorcycles growing up. And so just have always had this profound love for traditional tattoos and just have wanted to be covered in them really (laughs) my entire life. So that's what my, my husband's, um, you know, well, that's the joke is every time I speak, if I get a um, stipend or I get a honorarium, then it goes to my little tattoo budget, but I don't tell people that too often because I think it might make people upset. I won't tell anybody. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I mean, the, the, the butterfly and skull does have kind of a contrasting, uh symbolism at least in our society so it does have a uh it could have a lot of deeper meaning if you wanted to yeah. to, to milk it so i i it's funny i i um i have i have a few tattoos not not many um i i would i would lean more towards i, I would probably uh, cover my body i don't know some some days i'm like no and other days like yeah why not let's just go for it um, but I'm getting kind of old so that, you know, when you do an old um, age, it's, it's a little like, you, you look like a try hard, but the, the one that I really oh, wanted sure. and I don't think I will get is, um, the depiction of Ezekiel 37, the, the Ezekiel breathing over the dry bones. And so you yeah, have this, um, yep. graveyard coming to life. So very, very, I mean, tons of skeleton skulls. I mean, it could be, again, it really very much could be right on the cover of an Iron Maiden album, but such a, that's been like, um a profound passage and even just theological theme for me, just this, this graveyard of Israelites and God is breathing life into them and they're coming alive. And that whole, like the spirit giving life in that passage underlies so much of new Testament theology. So really rich, rich theological symbolism, but I could eat, if I got it, I could easily join a biker gang and they would, you know, fit right in. So yeah, Mm. kind of a win-win. 
uh brenna thank you so much for the chat really appreciate you and uh yeah keep doing what you're doing um we'll keep you up in our prayers oh um you have a book you're working on and i want people to be able to find you i know you're really active on instagram which and you have great content there so yeah t- where can people find you and tell us just briefly about your book yeah so you can find me on instagram uh it's at bun on my head i don't it that will just always be my handle but you can search <laughs> brenna blaine blaine uh b-l-a-i-n i'm the only brenna blaine in north america so it's pretty easy to find really? me spelled that way so without an e at the end um and I am writing a book called Can I Say That? How Unsafe Questions Lead to the Real God. And um, throughout my time of ministry and just what I've experienced in life, I've found that the overwhelming consensus is that questions, doubts, and suffering serve as an off-ramp to faith in people's lives. But when I look at what I've gone through, I think that they when we lean into them, they unveil the the person of God deeply to us. And so mm. the book is kind of saying, hey, progressivism is saying, burn it to the ground. And legalism is saying, don't you dare say this out loud. Mm. But I think God is standing in the middle saying, let's walk on a journey that will look radical to people on both sides, but will come out the end with it, with a deep sense of knowing who God is and knowing how to voice our unsafe questions out loud in community and walking through them. So it's um, really meant to be not necessarily an answer to deconstruction, but to step into the, the spaces of deconstruction with um, maybe a, a voice that hasn't really been been elevated in those spaces and so um i'm really excited it will probably i'm working on it right now so it we've got some time but if you join me on instagram there's regular updates on there and so um i'm really excited to to be putting that out great thanks so much brenna yes thanks for having me This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.